Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm pleased to welcome Kathy Perinello, Chief Operating Officer and Executive Vice President for Strong Memorial Hospital at the University of Rochester. She's a great supporter of our research, and I'm very fortunate to have her as a friend. Kathy, thanks for being with us. Happy to be here, Tom. You know, we were together recently. I think a nice way to kick off our conversation is to go back to something that you said to me earlier this year that just stopped me dead in my tracks. You were describing what your clinician colleagues refer to as a sense of moral distress around circumstances that kind of interfere with their patient's ultimate well-being. Can you talk to us a little bit about that phenomenon? Happy to, Tom, because it was really unusual and something that we hadn't really heard much about before. So we first heard about our clinicians talking about moral distress during the pandemic. At that time, it most often related to situations in which their patients needed care, but they were unable to get patients that care in a timely way, often due to the pausing of elective visits and procedures or patients' fear during the pandemic of coming into our healthcare settings due to the virus. With the progression of the pandemic, clear indications of health disparities emerged that related to a number of things that caused more distress. Many of our patients who were infected with the virus had challenges with regard to isolating themselves from family members who were ill from those other members of the household that didn't have the opportunity to move to other households or they didn't have the room in their home to really isolate as we felt necessary. Also, the severity of the illness associated with the COVID infection affected certain populations much more than it affected others, causing our clinicians to begin to appreciate the impact of these chronic diseases. And if patients have blood pressure out of control, diabetes, cancer patients, you know, they were more severely affected by the COVID infection. And that was challenging in terms of how do they manage that. And then the ability for some individuals in our communities to get tested because of where they lived and lack of access, ability for people to get vaccinated when the vaccination first became available. Many patients had deeply rooted mistrust of the healthcare system, which influenced their decisions about getting vaccinated. And so our clinicians were very concerned about that, which was really actually very interesting and I think very rewarding to see. We saw many of our clinicians begin to take different kind of actions in the community, speaking out in the community, urging persons to become vaccinated or to get tested when ill and that kind of thing. Our clinicians expressed great concern, and then many of them, though, really tried to take actions to deal with that. I think most recently, it's the staffing shortages that are creating problems and this sense of moral distress on the part of our clinicians, both physicians, nurses, and other providers. And the reason is there are delays with elective surgeries getting scheduled, there are delays in getting advanced imaging and other kind of diagnostic procedures done due to staffing shortage, and that's causing distress. And in fact, our primary care docs, as well as our specialists, are also have great concern when they have to refer patients to the hospital, knowing that they're going to come to RED and likely wait there a long period of time to get a bed on the floor because the hospital is full. And with the staffing shortages, some beds have had to be closed. So all of those things, I think, have really contributed to our clinicians feeling this sense of not being able to do the kind of work they want to do. And on top of all that, there is a growing disconnect between what clinicians want to do for their patients 
and the degree to which the preferred course of care and treatment is covered by the patient's insurance plan. Typically, our clinicians don't think about insurance coverage when they're providing care. You know, they learn evidence-based practice. They spend time talking with colleagues about the best course of action for a patient. And then when they learn a certain medication or a certain intervention isn't covered by a particular plan, that causes distress. That distress is only heightened when they believe they have to make decisions on how to provide care based on the insurance coverage a person has or doesn't have. I think the other thing that's emerged is we have upgraded our medical record to begin to capture information on patient social care needs or their social determinants of health. And a lot of our clinicians have expressed concern because as they learn about those social care needs in ways they haven't thought about before, there's a lot of distress on their part as it relates to, well, what can they do about a person's food insecurity, unsafe housing, or any of those other issues that do emerge as it relates to trying to capture information on social care needs that the patients have. It strikes me that things are not the same after the pandemic as they were before, but it's not all COVID. Obviously, COVID shut everything down for a while and then we rebounded and the world is a different place now with COVID still around. But it just feels to me like something's not the same now as it was before. And I can't draw a straight line to the virus. Does that make any sense to you at all? It does, Tom. We're kind of making some of those same observations among our leadership team as we meet with employees and clinicians in recent months. A lot of the issues that they raise are not directly related to COVID. And in fact, the COVID burden has become much less intense. We still have 60, 70 patients hospitalized that have COVID. Some of them have the virus incidentally. They're here for other things. We test them. They're positive. Others, very vulnerable persons, might come in with a COVID illness, but not with the significant lung damage and disease that we saw early on. Medically, the virus is tapering off in terms of severity. It continues to be quite contagious, and many staff members are getting the virus because of their work and activities they do outside of work. But the severity of that virus isn't as scary as it was in 2020. So we are trying to figure out what has changed as it relates to the COVID experience and now this recovery. And I think a lot of it has to do with the stress and strain of the pandemic, the fact that the way we managed care by closing things down, by not being able to do elective cases, but yet many healthcare providers who were taking care of hospitalized patients were busier than ever. And I think there's a bit of post-traumatic stress, perhaps might be a way to explain it. And the fact that on the heels of that, we saw so many workers leave the industry. And there's been a lot of disruption in terms of the nursing, technologist, technician workforce that has made the environment extremely stressful. And I think the experience our physicians are having, because in our organization, we don't seem to have a shortage of physicians. Now, of course, there's always specialties where we are still recruiting, but we don't seem to have an overall shortage of physicians or certainly residents and fellows. You know, those positions are all filled. 
it's that mid-level worker. It's our other licensed workers, our nurses, our radiology techs, our lab techs. And they're feeling enormous stress and strain because there aren't the same numbers of those professionals as there were pre-COVID. But yet there are the same number of physicians trying to take care of patients, ordering uh, tests and diagnostic studies, wanting to get their patients in for surgery, and they feel they can't do that because of workforce shortages. So I think it's all kind of bundled up in those kinds of issues and factors. If you'll forgive another cul-de-sac, I just was having a conversation with an academic medical center CEO last evening, and he said something that I think is germane to our conversation right here. He was saying, you know, his board was puzzled by the fact that during COVID, the hospital was jammed full of patients, but struggling economically. And one of his kind of business person board members just flat asked, do you mean to say that the economic underpinnings of the organization are completely related to surgery and to, in particular, to cancelable surgery? And when the CEO said, yeah, kind of, uh, you know, that's the, that's the financial reality that we work in, the board member just was having a hard time understanding how we got here. Listening to you talk about both the moral distress of not being able to do for our patients what we feel like they need. And then at the same time, this kind of overwhelming that you just put your finger on what I was struggling with, this feeling of kind of being overwhelmed at the same time as the financial system or the economics of it are not aligned. The resources to do what you know you ought to do are hard to come by because of the way that we've paid for these things. Do you think that maybe COVID kind of unveiled a bigger issue? COVID was certainly just a tidal wave of a problem. But as it recedes, what it's leaving behind is this exposed financial mess that we've created over 50 years. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting and a good point you're making. And I think part of the problem or the issue relates to the fact that the public thinks high quality health care is something that needs to be available to them when they need it, regardless of some of these financial pressures. But we live in a reimbursement environment where we get paid only when we provide an intervention for the most part. Right. Even though we have value-based contracts that we're working on, um, they're primarily associated with gain sharing. So mm -hmm. we work with the health plan. And if we can keep the patient out of the hospital, provide services in a less costly environment, we share in those savings. Those are all good approaches, but we are still in an industry like many other businesses in America, right, where we get paid when we provide an encounter or a service. And I think what you're alluding to is the fact that is that the way healthcare should be financed in the U.S.? I think one of the challenges is that a lot of people have believed that perhaps what got slowed down when there are staffing shortages or during the early days of COVID was elective care. And I think sometimes we use the word elective when we're talking about patients who come in for their surgery or their procedure from home. Right. Scheduled. Right. Yeah, that's scheduled, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. A scheduled procedure is not necessarily an elective procedure. Exactly. Right. And that was another thing that really contributed to the distress among our clinicians. New York State actually required that elective procedures be canceled 
during a couple of different waves of COVID. And we had lots of discussion about what's elective and what's not. And we came up with a definition that an elective case would be a case that could be deferred three months without creating harm for the patient. But when our clinicians got together, they says, well, what about this tumor resection? I could put it off three months, Mm -hmm. but what's it going to be like in three months? Exactly. They also talked about patients with significant spine issues or joint pain, patients that might be on opioids today to deal with the pain. And if they don't have their surgery for three, five, six months, what is that going to do in terms of their dependence on pain medication? And is that really an elective surgery, even though the patient is home, comes in from home, and has that procedure scheduled? So this whole notion of what is elective and what isn't is, I think, not well understood amongst non-clinical types. I have to tell you that I feel like I've had an awakening this morning. I asked you that question about, you know, what's different after COVID that's really not COVID. I hadn't thought about it too much, but listening to the course of this conversation, I'm increasingly now convincing myself that what's different is that COVID washed the sand off of a problem that was there, but that we weren't forced to stare at it. I think this misaligned financing is perhaps a bigger issue than what any of us thought. Let's shift gears for a quick second and go back to something that you touched on in your first set of comments. You know, America is rightly less tolerant today, really after COVID, uh, less tolerant of longstanding health disparities. But let's look beyond the first order problem of uneven access to care and think about something that I call experiential disparities. Think about the enormous gaps in the experiences that some patients and their families have compared to the experience that other patients and their families have once they access the system. And my question to you is, should we aspire as a healthcare system to narrow those experiential gaps in addition to tackling access disparities? You know, Tom, you're absolutely right. And there's a lot we're doing in our organization around that experience because there is a lot more to disparities than access to care or insurance coverage. And increasingly, our providers are appreciating the impact a patient's experience with the healthcare system or with their encounter with them has on their compliance with the recommended treatment or the patient's willingness to return for care or share all the necessary information to a provider who they perceive comes to the relationship with a biased view, albeit often subconscious bias. So it's increasingly important in our efforts is to understand better that implicit bias evidenced in the use of stigmatizing language and often in what we see in the patient medical record. One of the things we've done, it was based on work done out of the University of Chicago, and we're looking at the degree of stigmatizing language in our medical record and are developing educational programs around phrases and descriptions that are often used, you know, when physicians believe they're communicating to healthcare providers through the record. But now many parts of the records through patient portals and electronic records are available to patients. So we are looking hard to identify better ways to describe certain situations. You don't define a patient by their disease. 
You define the patient by the symptoms and concerns that they're bringing to the table. In fact, one of our primary care docs, he's been working with the team from Stanford on this uh, program called Presence 5 for Racial Justice. And that's an educational program for physicians, which focuses on a number of things. It's preparing for the visit with the provider, teaching them to prepare for the visit with intention, reflecting on the patient they're seeing in any identity bias or power dynamic that may exist, the training on listening intently and completely to a patient without interrupting and trying to you know, move the discussion along too quickly, the notion of agreeing with patients on what matters most to them talking about explicit discussion of goals of care, and connecting with the patient's story, understanding a little bit about the patient's background and not jumping directly to the medical issues. Some of the other things we're doing, and I mentioned this, I think, a little earlier when I was talking about capturing more social care needs from patients, but we're also looking at improving our capture rate in the medical record of things such as race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender identity, and so forth, um, as defined by the patient, so that we can examine our patient experience scores as well as our quality scores in light of some of these variables. And it's been very interesting. We looked at patient experience, and we looked at it by race and ethnicity. And there were some interesting findings that came across for hospitalized patients as we've begun to do that analysis. What we found is some of our younger Black individuals were less satisfied with their care in the hospital than young white individuals. And this is across all our service lines, so it wasn't just, you know, a particular group of providers. But interestingly enough, Blacks over age 70 identified, at least through their surveys, that they were more satisfied with their care and experience in the hospital than whites over 70. So it was an interesting finding And it caused us to think, you know, perhaps there's age-related cultural issues there where people in the older age groups were maybe taught not to be critical of healthcare services, where younger individuals are ready to identify that experience differential. So we're spending a lot of time trying to look at the data and understand what we need to do to improve that experience, because it is truly important if patients are going to engage with us in their care, follow a recommended plan of treatment, and participate with them and their loved ones in managing their care. You raised this issue a couple times uh, this morning. You can't have a conversation in healthcare today without acknowledging uh, the elephant in the room being the labor shortage. What is the labor shortage? How did it happen so rapidly? And what can we do to fix it? Yeah, I think, Tom, that's the elephant in the room for sure. And I don't think there's a healthcare leaders group or meeting that I attend these days where there is not a discussion of workforce shortage in healthcare and what are we doing about it. When I look at what's happened, certainly in our region, in our community, and it's consistent, you know, nationally, I read recently 40 million people in the U.S. left the workforce in 2021. I mean, that's a huge, you know, they talk about the great resignation. Mm -hmm. And while many left for cash incentives or better pay, people also left the labor market to care for children or elderly relatives. And meanwhile, older workers often retired early. We saw a lot of that. People in their early to mid-60s that might have historically worked longer retiring, either because they could or because they were burned out by demanding jobs. And I think with the growth in remote work options, many older people selected those opportunities if they could. 
And I think that aspect, you know, that great resignation, so to speak, it hit healthcare particularly hard as the work is demanding. And for direct care providers, which are the ones that are most in demand today, it's not conducive to remote work that's become so increasingly popular and attractive to workers. I also think in healthcare, this temporary contract work employment has been highly attractive to workers, pulling them out of regular jobs in our hospitals and healthcare systems due to the fact that they could earn higher wages, even in the face of lower benefits, which are often readily traded off for higher wages, especially among younger populations. And it's interesting, I think that phenomena, it's not only created distress amongst the workers that remain employed by the hospital and aren't making these exorbitant hourly rates, but it also has caused many of these workers, people working for temporary contract organizations, they're actually have decreased their hours of work because they can achieve their target income through fewer days at work, less overtime due to this higher hourly wage. So that whole phenomena wreaked havoc, particularly in the healthcare industry. And we're seeing that we use travelers in our own organization just to help bolster the number of individuals we have, but it creates distress amongst our existing employees who are kind of looking at the travelers as people that are coming in and yes, they're helping out. They often aren't as well prepared because they haven't been in our organization. It's been a real challenge, both because of having to seek these outside workers, but also then dealing with the distress amongst our own workers because of that. I can't imagine the morale challenge that that creates. Our industry for so long has hinged on that kind of camaraderie and team spirit and the person next to me has my back. And boy, you you guys work so hard to build that culture and then this gets in the way. Yeah. And I think the other thing we're experiencing is this healthcare shortage is affecting not only hospitals, but all levels of healthcare. And our nursing home And home care agencies have been hit hard with shortages, which, you know, if nursing homes can't take patients and home care agencies can't enroll as many patients, what happens? Patients back up in the hospital. So what's intensifying the workforce shortage for us is the fact that we have a higher number of these patients waiting for nursing home beds or waiting for home care services. We have a higher number of these patients being hung up in the hospital, occupying acute care beds because we can't get them out to the next level of care that's appropriate for them. So that's been a real challenge for us as well. Let me ask you our last substantive question and preface it by maybe an observation. I think there are at least two enormous contributors to resource consumption and really to compromised quality of life that we have as an industry, we haven't yet quite figured out. And and I, I would suggest that the mental illness and the socioeconomic drivers of poor health status are a couple of things that we just haven't yet figured out. As tempting as it is to think that we can solve the underlying social causes of these things. I'm not optimistic about that. I think we have to focus on the medical manifestations of those social determinants of health and at the same time do a much better job with mental illness. But it feels like we need partners in order to get that done. What do you think? I think you're absolutely right. 
Obviously, evidence abounds regarding the effect of socioeconomic status, poverty, race, ethnicity, and all those of other demographic variables and the effect they have on health status. And clearly, our healthcare systems do not have the ability to address all of those societal issues. So I think you're right. Partnerships with agencies and community organizations will be essential if we're going to be able to influence some of those really important factors. I think one area we can have an impact, and germane to the previous discussion, is the potential for job and career creation that we have in healthcare today. We just talked about workforce shortages, and we continue to be a labor-intensive industry, so would be well-served to partner with community groups on job creation for both entry-level jobs as well as developing career pathways for employees who are in the early entry-level jobs and want to climb a career ladder in healthcare. That's going to require new and different ways of investing in our workforce. I think things such as tuition support, training stipends, it will also require developing work environments that are inclusive and supportive of ongoing growth and development opportunities. A key way out of poverty, as everyone knows, is job creation. And I think healthcare has plenty of opportunities to create jobs and work with community agencies to employ more people in our communities in our healthcare settings. I'm certainly encouraged by New York State's current proposal for its second federal 1115 waiver, where they're proposing to redesign the Medicaid program, and they've advocated for integration of funding for social care. So New York State is proposing, should this waiver get approved, which it looks like it's being reviewed positively at this point at the federal level, but they're looking at a way to integrate some funding for both social care needs as well as medical and behavioral health needs. And they're looking to provide funding to our health plans, our managed care organizations, as well as our accountable care organizations that are going to be required to be spent on addressing these social care needs. And they also call for coalitions of these community-based organizations to come together so that they can provide funding to some of these organizations that are working in partnerships with clinicians to meet some of those needs. Because as you noted, healthcare, we're not the experts in providing housing and programs to address food insecurity and transportation and those kinds of things. And then I think pivoting to the mental health issues, they've become pervasive in our communities and there's just not the array of resources needed to address them in a timely and a substantive way. Residential or in-facility care for mental illness has become limited, and I don't think we've yet found the right mix of care venues to address this growing mental health crisis. Whereas telehealth services for mental illness grew rapidly during the pandemic, unlike many other clinical services, we're still doing a lot of virtual visits by phone or video in the mental health arena. Virtual visits have the ability to expand access and convenience for patients, but there are many with mental illness who don't do well with this level of interaction. So we've got to find the right venues. We've launched and we've seen enormous growth in our mobile health programs where we have a clinical team, including psychiatrists and therapists that go to the patients, be they in a school, a group home, in the community, and try to do intervention at the site, sometimes having to bring them back to the hospital, but oftentimes being able to get them into outpatient care. Just like we have medical urgent care sites, we're looking to open kind of a walk-in center for behavioral health crises, particularly for children, is what we're trying to launch because we want to avoid the overuse of the crowded EDs where patients often present with mental health problems. So there's lots of things I think that we can't do and we need to work with partners around, but there are some things that we can do and and need to focus on. 
housing is a critical area for the behavioral health population in particular. And some of the things we've done, and I know others that I've talked to in our academic centers and other healthcare settings, we actually do room reservations now with a number of our different community partners for temporary housing so that we can discharge patients from our ED or discharge patients from our behavioral health inpatient service who don't have supportive housing, who live in places where if they have a substance use disorder, the home setting isn't conducive to working through the treatment for that. We probably have about 50 to 60 room reservations that we pay for monthly with community partners so that we can send our patients to these organizations and then they work with them on long-term housing opportunities. So I think it's really important to think about those kind of strategies and the partners in our community that really are experts in that and can help us with these societal issues. Well, the creativity that you're describing is encouraging because I think more of the same is better than not more of the same, but it's not as good as something different. And I'm very, very encouraged to hear you guys giving some thought to new approaches to these things. You know, we always like to close our conversations with a question that gives folks a chance to learn a little bit something about you that they wouldn't otherwise know. I know you're an avid tennis player, but there's a game that I have to ask you about. When I was a kid, I used to play wiffle ball in the backyard. And it seems like somebody has taken tennis and wiffle ball and merged them together. What is pickleball? And who came up with that name? We had a long discussion about this at our last Vizient Senior Operating Officers meeting because we had a couple of people that have converted from tennis to pickle and a few others that were violently still avid tennis players. So it was really a lot of fun. And I have to admit, obviously, I was a tennis player first because pickle is relatively new. And I did hear that there were a couple of dads, I guess, who were trying to amuse their children. And they created, probably because they had wiffle balls that they used in the backyard for baseball. Um, And they developed this game with a paddle where you hit this wiffle ball, kind of a blend between tennis and I don't know what else, <laughs> but this game where, and the scoring is, you know, it probably takes longer to learn to score in pick a ball <laughs> than it does to actually learn to hit the ball. <laughs> but I have to admit, I have to admit as much as I love tennis and still avidly play that, I have resorted to playing pickle and I'm liking it better each time I play. So there you have it. <laughs> You know, I don't have a right knee that will allow me to be your doubles partner, but if you'll let me just sit on the sidelines and watch, maybe you can teach me a few things about that. (laughs) Kind of gives a new meaning to the balls in your court, I suppose, right? Yeah, it sure does. It sure does. What I've heard, though, that pickle is easier on your knees, Tom. And I know a lot of people that as they age, and I'm kind of thinking about that myself too now, that pickle is actually an easier sport on their knees than tennis ever was. So you may want to think about that. Maybe I got a shot at it afterwards. Well, Kathy, I'm a huge admirer of your work at Rochester, and I can't thank you enough for your tremendous support of our research over the years. And today in particular, I just have to tell you that the conversation that we had today was one of those moments where I just grabbed a moment of clarity that I haven't had around a couple of issues. So thanks so much for being with us and for taking time for us. Well, thanks for asking me. I really appreciated the opportunity. I love to talk about healthcare and what we're doing and learn new things. So happy to have been able to participate. Great to have had you. 
And thank you for listening in. We hope you find these conversations thought-provoking, and we look forward to welcoming you back for a future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then.